0: Broadcasting from Washington DC, this is Insider's Guide to Energy.
1: Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me is my co-host, Jeff McCauley. Jeff, how's it going today?
2: Wonderful, Chris. Conference season is back in swing. Had a little bit of travel last week uh, back in Boston now, but great to get out there and have energy-themed conversations as always. How about you?
1: Uh, Same with you. I've been at trade shows for the last few weeks. Happy to be back here in DC. It's great to be on the podcast and it's great to be talking about finance and energy. I mean, these things tend to go together. So I'm I'm looking forward to having another good conversation. Do you have any expectations or things that you want to learn out of today's episode? Gosh,
2: well, I've never created an energy index that is tradable. So I'm looking to learn everything about that. Uh, Definitely an interesting topic and I'm expecting we'll learn a ton today.
1: All right, well, let's bring on Timothy Kramer, the CEO and founder of CNIC. Uh, Timothy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So to kick off, I always like to say, you know, I think Jeff let the cat out of the bag of what you've done, but maybe start with the Cliff Note version of what your role is and then what, what problem you set out to solve.
0: Sure. So I am the founder and the CEO of a company called CNIC, which stands for Carbon Neutral Investment Company. And the opportunity that we saw is we just kind of phrase it as the electrification of America. And so with you know the ESG tailwinds and the U.S. going towards like 100 percent renewable grid and everything uh, flipping over to electric, we took a look and said, wow, on a retail notional basis, electricity is the most consumed commodity in the U.S. But it wasn't in any index. It wasn't in any mutual fund, no ETF, nothing. And so, you know, we thought we saw an opportunity here to kind of create an index and then try to launch some products that are uh, benchmarked in the index and then see what happens.
1: So so did you feel, I mean, you saw that there was not one existing. What what made you understand that the need for that? Why, why, why is there demand for that?
0: So if you take a look at there's other commodity indexes, right? So there's like the, the BCOM, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which has 24 different commodities. There's the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, the GSCI. It's got 24 different commodities. And there's like $800 billion or more that's indexed to those things. And so it just didn't make any sense if if you've got energy commodities in those broad-based commodity indexes. And we jokingly, and I know it's not true, but we jokingly say that crude oil and natural gas are going to zero and electricity is going to the moon. Now, you know, we know that's not the case, but if you look at like the EIA and the IEA numbers and the BNEF numbers, you've got, you know, some scenarios where you're uh, significantly lower on the consumption of crude natty down by like anywhere between 40 to 70 percent by 2035. And electricity is, you know, just going to be exponentially higher. So that just, it it didn't make any sense why it didn't exist in any of those products. And it just doesn't make any sense why it's going to be bigger and better with electricity and not to try to take advantage of that.
2: So, Timothy, help me understand this. So um, you said most funds have some, you know, single digit percentage in commodities, that commodity basket will include energy commodities like oil and gas. But your point is, it doesn't include electricity. And maybe historically, that was okay, because electricity was essentially correlated with oil and gas. But now it may not be. And looking into the future, it may not be. And to that extent, why not have electricity as a commodity in that five percent allocation of funds? That's that's is that your per- position. That's
0: perfectly said. That's a heck of a lot better than
2: what I said. Thank you. No, no, I'm learning from you. So, no. so this is um, this is really great. And why else is elect- Why don't you think electricity has been a part of that commodity basket before?
0: So I guess the first reason is the very first commodity index was made like in 1978, but there was not a commercial product tied to that until like 1998. And that's because it took a while for people to understand that. And that first commodity index, they they in, in essence mapped those individual commodities to inflation. And so it took a while for people to understand that with electricity, kind of where the disconnect was, is you really didn't have a really robust viable trading market for electricity until like the early 2000s until you know the, the advent of ice, the intercontinental exchange. And then once that started to get traded more and exchange cleared, you know those things kind of make electricity a little bit more in the forefront. And then right now we'll say starting like in 2018 and it's just getting bigger and better. Um, just the big push towards everything in the. US being electric. And then the ESG tailwinds, and then the US stated goal of being 100% carbon-free generation by 2035, all of those things just, just kind of heighten the awareness for this. And we think makes the right opportunity to do it now.
1: So a, a, a layman question, um, a lot of our electricity is still natural gas dependent, right? There's a lot of gas, there's still some coal, but so are we mature enough for this to stand of its own as opposed to tracking natural gas?
0: Um, so, well, the goal again is, you know, 85% renewable by 2030, 100% renewable by 2035. The correlations between, uh, electricity and natural gas are kind of starting to break down somewhat. They're still, depending upon the time of the year and what locations you're looking at is somewhere between, we'll say 60 and 80%. But we just go back to, you know, kind of skating where the puck is going to be versus where the puck is now. So if you're not going to have any gas-fired or coal-fired generation in 2030 or 2035, then that relationship should probably be even less, uh, less
2: robust. Great. And so help, help me understand why this is important. So the investors out there that have money allocated in commodities, what are they trying to do? What's the goal of having that 5% commodity exposure? And then how does electricity help achieve that goal?
0: Sure. So what you're looking for with that exposure is typically commodities are for inflation protection and then for portfolio diversification. So with respect to inflation protection, if you take a look at all the different commodities and what their relationship is to inflation, electricity is like the leader. So CPI comes out month after month and it's 2.5% electricity. And then the correlation of the monthly changes in CPI versus the changes in electricity prices, if you go back to like 2014, uh, that correlation is like north of 85%. So that's there. And that's on the direct. There's also an indirect because you know everything else that uses power that doesn't directly reflect that in the CPI or the numbers. So it's there for inflation protection. And then with respect to portfolio diversification, if you take a look at the correlation of the electricity index to uh, stocks and bonds. It's like literally like 0.00. So it gives you what you're looking for in terms of inflation protection and portfolio diversification. The other aspect is, you know, you've got people now talking about model portfolios. And so there was an article in the journal a couple of weeks ago that talked about, you know, a 60-40 model portfolio. So, you know, Mom, Pa, Kramer, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And they talked about how that portfolio was just been getting beat up recently. And so there's a movement afoot to see like a 60-35-5, so 60 stocks, 35 um, bonds, and then five commodities. So if you take a look and you backtest that, the 60-35-5 beats the 60-40. But if you do a 60-35-3-2 with three commodities and two electricity, that beats everything. So we think that you do get what you're looking for in terms of better risk-adjusted returns, along with the inflation protection and the portfolio diversification
1: how does one go about creating an index, right? You, 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 you kind of found a trouble spot or a a statement that you wanted to solve. So what does it mean that you created an index and then who's using the index?
0: So to create the index, what we did is we figured out, you know, what would, we, we kind of looked at it, reverse engineered it. So we thought what would be commercially acceptable? And so rather than pick just like one location in the U.S., we decided to do a basket of six of the major uh, traded power hubs in the U.S. And so that was kind of the first thing is to make it a little bit more commercially appealing that way. And then the second thing is electricity is not storable. So when you take a look at the Bloomberg Commodity Index or the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, they all invest in pretty much the first, uh, the first month, the prompt month of those 24 different commodities and the problem with electricity is because it's not storable as you would have to roll from one contract to another that just got messy so an example would be like the june ercot contract is 60 bucks the july is 100 the august is 140 and then the september is you know 60 again so if you're rolling you know if you bought 60s you got to sell those back out and then you got to buy you know hundreds then you got to so the seasonality just kind of made the rolls messy and then the liquidity structure too. So not only did we do the six hubs, but we stretched them out over a 12-month period so you could take advantage of the backwardation in the marketplace because the power markets tend to be backwardated which means that the the longer dated months tend to be below where the current months are. So you would get positive roll yield on that and then it would spread the liquidity out so that you wouldn't, you know, flood one particular area with a bunch of buy orders at one time. So we did it to spread it across the U.S., spread it across a time tenor, and kind of take care of the seasonality and liquidity aspects of it all at once. So that's kind of how we thought of it and how we created it. And then just sat down, put it together, and then went to go talk to ICE and showed them what we had. And they made a couple of tweaks to it, and here we
2: are. And when you think about the weighting of those different hubs geographically what are you using for that and then also um diurnal like is it on peak off peak or sort of round the clock when you think about it.
0: so what we did for the weights is we took a look at what the average annual consumption is for each one of those six hubs and then we we do like a three-year uh average weight on that And that's very similar to what the other commodities do when they figure out kind of what their weight should be inside of the basket. And we did that so we could be fungible with these other commodity indexes. So that's kind of how we got the weight piece of this.
1: So uh, with the greening of, you know, and and electrification of everything and IRA and other government programs, is this somewhat predictable because- We're looking at demand growth charts that are crazy, right? Now, recently, there's been a number of articles saying that the EV production, that motor vehicle manufacturers are saying they're not getting the demand they had thought in the market. So there's been a bit of a slowdown a little bit that in production. But is this kind of a forcing function from government and policy to drive the prices in this? Or is this really a, a market that's changing quite a bit?
0: Uh, it's a market that's changing pretty rapidly. Um, a lot of the changes are, you know, driven by either local or, you know, government, et cetera. Um, some of the things that we point to is I think it's like there's nine States now. And I think New Jersey was the most recent one that January 1st of 2035, you can't even sell a combustion engine in the state, a brand new one that is. So you got all these States that are, that are mandating, you know, no new combustion engine cars, Um, In New York state, no gas stove hookups anymore. And I think there's like four or five other states that followed with that. California passed a rule that by January 1st of 2035, no delivery trucks in the state can be uh, gas powered. They have to all be electric. So there's just so many things that are coming through here in terms of uh, people kind of recognizing what they think the impact is in the environments and then what they'd like to see to try to force the issue in terms of everybody getting green or, or at least carbon neutral.
1: So then what drives the pricing so it's not always going up, right? I mean, there, there there's probably, I mean, if, if, if what you said, there would just be a hockey stick curve at some point and it would just kind of rock it up. But the reality is probably not that. So what, what's driving fluctuality or fluctuation?
0: Well, I think that in terms of prices going up, the thing i like to point out right now is in the past, we'll say four weeks, um, you had like the New York offshore wind. You had Orsted and it was uh, BP Equinor. And so Orsted went back to New York State and said, "Hey, you know, we're we're going to build wind for you offshore, and we hedged it forward at 110 dollars a megawatt hour. Sorry, we're not profitable. We can't even break even until that gets raised to 140." And the BP Equinor they moved their prices from I think like 118 bucks up to like about 190, and that's because they've got rising interest rates, you've got you know difficult access to labor, uh, material costs, everything else, and so. You know, I get the point where people are saying if we're going to be renewable, the marginal cost of that should be zero. But the guys that make that want to make a profit and you still have issues with those particular things getting built and kind of what the escalating costs are in that.
2: Great. So if I understand the the thesis and and also electricity as a hedge separate from natural, natural gas, it's the case in which electricity prices are rising, but natural gas is not the marginal pricing mechanism. The the marginal price of electricity is not dictated by natural gas. If it was, then you'd be just as good just having natural gas in the commodity basket. So the scenario that you're um, designed for in some ways to help hedge is a case when electricity prices go up and natural gas prices are neutral or falling. And the case in which that happens is your expected zero marginal cost renewables end up being more expensive, supply chain, interest rates, etc., um, and/or your demand continues to increase. Electrification of everything is that—that's the general story.
0: That's the general one. Yeah, there's one more twist I put on that, and that is. Um, The renewables that you're getting right now versus the plants that you're retiring, the renewables aren't dispatchable. So you really can't load follow. You can't really vary the output. I mean, you get the wind when you get it. You get the solar when you get it. You can't control that. And so uh, ERCOT right now, ERCOT just came back with uh, they're trying to do, I believe it's a a low interest loan, like a 3 percent loan for 20 years. And there are some other uh, tax breaks they're doing. They're trying to incentivize people to all of a sudden build uh, peaking units, which primarily are going to be, you know, gas fired units. So they've recognized that with this push to these renewables, um, you've made the grid less stable and they're going to look at putting on, you know, some natural gas resources just, you know, for the peak shading. But when you do that, you know, if that natural gas peaking plant only runs, pick a number, 20 hours a year. Uh, you're not really, I mean, you're pricing into that marginal molecule, but there are a lot of other costs that go in there that make that much more expensive than that marginal
2: molecule. Right. Exactly. Like the capital costs, um, if you're not operating.
0: Yeah. OpEx, CapEx, everything else. So, so you do, um, you do actually increase the, the cost of the marginal megawatt when you go to those peakers in that scenario. But generally what you said is, is pretty much
2: spot on. Mm -hmm. Is there a case for the opposite, uh, where you might have high natural gas prices and low electricity prices? And I think that's what people may be more familiar with as the the duck curve, where you have midday prices. This would only be an issue if it's um, more on peak than round the clock. But uh, where you have excess solar production, for example, in in California – and that may outweigh what happens in short-term price spikes for natural gas.
0: On a short-term basis, I think you can see that. And so on a short-term basis, the relationship between gas prices and power prices is like, the correlation is like sub 30%. So if I took a look at like what the dayhead clearing prices are for power and the day dayhead clearing prices are for the correct gas location. So, um, you know, PJM and we'll say M3, et cetera. If I take a look at those correlations, they're like, you know, 20 or 30 percent. And so on an intraday basis or like, you know, even like a very short term, like, you know, next day, maybe, you know, balance of the week type basis, those relationships break down. But the relationships stay strong, at least they've been strong. When you take a look at um, the NYMEX, you know, the, the exchange traded gas versus the exchange traded power, those do stay strong. So you could see a relationship and you're starting to see it now with what's going on, that kind of a breakdown, like higher gas prices and, and lower uh, electricity prices. But again, you get some weird aberrations like today, right? Um, the, the day head market for ERCOT, hour ending eight was like 200 bucks. And then the real time market came in 37 bucks. And so it's if you've got normal amounts of wind and normal amounts of solar and the load comes in as it's supposed to, you're good. But if you're missing one of those things, then that relationship between gas and power breaks down.
1: And how does storage, how does grid scale storage play into this, right? So it may not be ubiquitous yet, but how is that formula going to change?
0: Sure. So the the best thing to point through is um, um, ISN New England put out a report maybe about nine months, a year ago. And they were saying that in order to have a 100% renewable grid, you would need to have pretty much 400% of what you think the peak is going to be plus you'd have to have batteries that would last 8 hours and cover i think they said about 45% of what the peak load is so there's some pretty big numbers to make that happen if you want to be 100% green and 100% of the batteries kind of filling on that peak merchant batteries right now uh, I still think they're not profitable in any part of the US And so most of the batteries that you see getting built are done um, simply off of like RFPs or guys that want to check a regulatory box to say that they're X percent um, storable.
2: Yeah, we are seeing some more at least proposals for um, merchant batteries in ERCOT, but not sure how many of those are getting built. That would be a good follow up topic. But either way, I think that makes the point of there's a potential decoupling between gas and electricity on the margin. If you hit what I like to call peak or parity between gas and battery, then you've just got another, there's more uh, more options in terms of how that marginal megawatt hour is is priced. Um, so I think that's interesting. And, and look, the the takeaway for me, and you know all this better than, than we do, better than a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, it's complicated. We don't know necessarily, is electricity going to go up? Is it going to go down? And so for people who really get those mechanics who are in the market, who are sophisticated traders, they can trade. There's lots of instruments, heat rate call options, you know all sorts of forwards and futures, uh, you know regionally, temporarily resolved. They can do that. But what about the rest of us? What about the larger funds who don't want to get into the nitty-gritty? what you're saying is, here's a tradable and you've got it's an ETF, right? So this is accessible on a retail basis for uh, you know, all the way down to the, the armchair investor up to the largest funds in the world where they don't have to get into this and we don't have to pretend like we know, is it going to go up or down? Is it going to stay correlated or not? There's enough uh, factors there where uh, this is a way to hedge against whatever ends up happening.
0: Right, yeah. So if you've got access to the futures market, if you're a speculator, or a hedger, et cetera, that's the cleanest, most efficient way to express your view on this. But if you are a pension, if you're an endowment, high net worth, family office, et cetera, the only way that you can really express the view right now is in this product.
2: So I guess this begs the question, uh, if this is such a great idea and it's so needed in the market, why didn't Bloomberg do it? Uh, Bloomberg's the 800-pound gorilla in
0: this space, so i got to be careful what I say. They're, I mean, we, we've got a relationship with them. They're, they're a good group. Um, the the sticking point came I'd say with the data because ice is the premier exchange and clearing mechanism for electricity futures and so they've got the data as well as you know all the clearing functions that go on there and they've got their own index team so and ice also owns the New York Stock Exchange which is where the ETF is listed so those things kind of fit together um, I do think that, other groups are looking at trying to figure something out here. Um, we, we have an exclusive on the data and the index, so I think we're protected for a while. But I do think you will sometime in the future see some other products pop up.
1: So is this going to be mainstream then? Is this going to be in everybody's portfolio at some point in the future, you're thinking? I mean, this is early innings from what, from what I see, right? So you've created this. You're just kind of working with some institutions to get this going. But does do you see if you turn the clock head four or five years is this in everybody's pension fund type of thing
0: yeah I would say that this is something if you take a look again at the portfolio um, allocation so you know we'll say 60 3, three two something like that this is something that you should have a small percentage of your AUM allocated to and then just you know put it away forget it and that's what you see some of the pensions and endowments doing they typically they'll typically uh, hold between like 3% to three to five percent of um, their AUM in commodities, and they just kind of leave it there. So I, I th- you know, we're not looking for of the eight hundred billion dollars that's tied to commodities. We're not looking for a forty percent market share. It just doesn't make any sense for anybody to do that. I mean, we're just we're just kind of playing for that, you know, two, three, five percent of the commodity piece, or that three percent, or you know, whatever the number would be for the the personal investor.
2: Great. And Timothy, this is really fascinating. We, we dove right into the index and how it's constructed, but your facility with this conversation, both of energy trading and of indexes and, and how all this works, uh, I'd love to hear more about your background, how your journey led you to this point, and your especially the pieces of your experience that led you to have this idea or even know that it was possible to create such an index.
0: Sure. So before this, I worked for a private equity shop and I was responsible for their commodity hedging for their infrastructure and their PE groups. And so that led to like a, a broader exposure to commodities. So it was, you know, obviously electricity, natural gas, crude oil, it was interest rates, it was some metals, things like that. And I actually got my start in the capital markets back um, as a currency trader in the early to mid 90s, working for Lehman Brothers on Wall Street. So I always liked to look at like a bunch of different vehicles, not just one commodity. So in the back of my mind, I was always looking for an opportunity to try to figure something out that had like a kind of bigger, broader scope to it. And then just just watching what was going on in the space as everybody was shifting towards the renewables and watching this trend, but there was no, there's just no vehicle for the public to use. And so that's kind of how I put the pieces together and said, look, I've done pretty much all these other commodities. I think I know what, what goes on. And so that's, that's kind of how we started down the index path. We originally, it was just like, Hey, let's start a hedge fund. And in the hedge fund world, they've got um, what, what I call like the rule of fives. They say, you got to have $5 billion and get a 55% rate of return for five years. Otherwise you don't matter. It's like, uh, okay. So then we said, we're green. And then they said, okay, we'll talk to you, but you still got to have all those other requirements. And so we created the index because that at least gives something that people can look at. Because if you're trying to do a hedge fund, they go, well, what are your strategies? What do you do? And this, but with the index, it's rules based. It's like, here you go. And it's published by ICE, not us. So that just kind of led a certain amount of uh, credibility to what we were doing. And then that allowed us to kind of jumpstart the process a little bit faster to, to try to run some AUM off
2: that. That's great. And rather than having to, try to know where power prices are going, you can surface an index. And if people are long power, they can they can buy it. If they're, I assume uh, if people wanna short the index, they can, is there is there gonna be a short version of this too yeah, coming sure. out or so, are you sticking so with like, the, the simple yeah, basket? Yeah
0: you, can, yeah, you can short this if you want to. So, I mean, it's, it's just a vehicle for you to express the view. So it just, in essence, if you think about it as electricity is now a, a, a commodity where before people didn't really view it that way.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And so for our listeners who are um, intrigued by what they've heard, but maybe not all of it makes sense, what advice would you have for people who are trying to make sense of this? This is kind of a lot of new information. What's a great way for people to get up to speed on commodities, on index, on, on futures trading? Um, how would you advise uh, maybe earlier listeners uh, if they're earlier in their career?
0: I'd tell them to go back and listen to all the podcasts that, that Chris and Jeff did because they're, they're a good source <laughs> of education. Other than that, I would, I mean, our, our website, cnicfunds.com, we try to put up a white paper once a month and we keep them brief, like five pages or less that address common questions that we get from people. And then we also post up, we try to do like a podcast once a month also, and we try to put those up there. So I think those things do a, a relatively good a job of kind of filling in some of the basics. Again, this is you know very new, like we talked about, not a lot of people have exposure to this And so it does take, you know, a bit of time to get people comfortable with it, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, this is really fascinating, Timothy. I want to say this is one of the more unusual topics for me, but highlights a corner of the um, financial markets that I wasn't previously as familiar with. And it's really interesting to see what you're you're doing and unpack it a little bit. We don't usually have to give the disclaimer, but I guess I suppose I have to say this is not legal tax or financial advice. We're not promoting uh, any securities. Uh, Chris and I don't own any of this uh, ETF, though it is intriguing. Um, And, and Timothy, really just want to thank you for um, sharing your thoughts and expertise with us today. I know our audience really, really will appreciate it as well.
0: I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks again. This is a great opportunity.
1: For our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this educational journey. It's It's been educational for me. It wasn't a part of the business I've generally tracked, so it's, it's been fun. If you like this content, don't forget to share it, subscribe, add comments, and follow us on YouTube. And we will see you again next time on Insider's Guide to Energy podcast. Bye-bye for now.